welcome to another Music Monday here on the BZ Listening Podcast. Uh, Before I introduce today's guest, I just want to let all of my listeners in the Cleveland area know that on Saturday, June 29th from 4 to 7, I will be putting on my variety show, The BZ Douglas Carnival, featuring music by myself and my wife. Uh, We'll be playing as BZ DZ, some PG-13 puppetry by Nate Puppets, old-time strongman Mark Burnett, and much, much more. This carnival will also be a part of Manorfest, two days of music, art, camping, and community at the McFarland Manor in Gordon Square. It's going to be a hell of a time. I hope to see you there. You can find uh, more details about that on the Facebook page or at bzdug.com. That's B-Z-D-U-G. Today, my guest is Matt Pless. He's a punk folk protest musician that I first encountered at Occupy Wall Street. And we spent a little time reflecting on that, as well as getting into all the standard who's, what's, how's, why's, how much, where you been's questions that I get into with every musician. So be sure to check out bzdug.com slash podcast for links to follow Matt on all the things. Thank you so much for downloading, and now give a listen to the songs and stories of Matt Pless. You're definitely on the, I won't say it's a short list, but you're on the list of artists who who make me see that there's something wrong with the world because you don't have more exposure. <laughs> Thanks. I appreciate that. It's cool. It's a, it's it's tragic that it's it it's not a short list. Yeah, you know, I mean, I I don't have any answers for why that is. You know, it's just I, I just haven't had that that. I mean, I'm not, I'm not even not even sure how it's done. You know, I mean, it's not like some like big wig rolls into like a coffee shop anymore and like says I'm going to make you a star with this cigar and all that. You know, it's you got the you got the goods, kid. Sign on the line. Yeah, that guy's not there anymore. Uh, I mean, it could happen. I mean, maybe they are, but they're probably going to put a beat behind you and, you know, dress you up in some kind of Justin Bieber stuff and, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And I I definitely, I want to get into that, but, um, seeing as how. Which I I could do. Oh yeah. And we we will, we will, but, uh, I'll try and keep things in in a bit of an order here. It saves me more headaches in the editing process if I, if I at least, uh, protect myself from tangents happening out of at least some sort of chronology. Um, so yeah, I don't know if you and I have ever actually like talked or hung out. I know I, I friended you, uh, and I became aware of you during Occupy Wall Street and I was going down there and I, I saw you at some point. I was like, Oh wow. Occupy Wall Street as a Bob Dylan. That's great. And <laughs> Then uh, I've just I've followed you since then, but I don't know that um, maybe I've I've seen you live here or there, but uh, I don't know a damn thing about your story, and I'd I'd be interested to find out like where does um, your musical story begin? Is music something that was fostered in your family or that you picked up and you were kind of a a, a you know an anomaly or what's your story? Well, my granddad built radios. And my dad owned a radio station and put music on the radio, and I make music <laughs> that goes on the radio. But the radio doesn't exist anymore, so I guess all that doesn't matter. But uh, I thought that was kind of cool. 
um my uh my mom and dad met at a radio station and uh you know music was always a big part of my family growing up a lot of variety of uh songs and styles were played in um my house and my they, mom played a little guitar you said they met at a radio station how how did they come to meet at a radio station were, were they both working there or Oh uh, yeah, they both worked at a radio station, and then they met there. And uh, my dad ended up uh, starting his own uh, DIY radio station in the '70s out of his uh, high school he taught at in Dundalk. And uh, and where where he, um, where's, where's that? I, and I I heard the city name, but I never heard that one before. I'm not sure where that's at. Oh, Dundalk is a it's like a blue collar town in Maryland. Um, okay. And my dad taught he taught communications there. Uh, for many for many years and um you know he uh he basically decided one day to start a radio station that the kids in his classes could run during lunch period like djs would play records that went over the intercom in the cafeteria and from there he built it up to an fm signal and moved it out of the high school and into like the basement of some motorcycle shop and he just kept building it and building it and finally he got uh, you know uh it got really big locally and regionally um, you know, I grew up getting babysat by DJs and stuff during when I mean, he'd take me down there on the weekend. What were the this, uh, business? What were the call letters? Oh, 97 Underground. <laughs> nice. Uh, he just uh, he actually just started again. He retired a couple of years ago and he started on, on the internet now. He's doing it again. Um, but back then it was, you know, the real deal like radio station, FM station tower stuff and. So I grew up around a lot of that. Um, they played his, heavy metal. What's his <laughs> online station? I'll check that out. Uh, 97underground.com. Oh, it's the same thing, 97underground.com. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. That's, uh, that's the great like thing metal. about podcasts and, and or this whole medium. It's, it's kind of open mic radio where it's like, well, if you have an idea for a radio show, <laughs> you can just make it. And you don't have any yeah. of the limitations either of well, it's it's got to be an hour or it's got to fit into a time slot and things like that. Yeah, it's pretty tight. Um, so he's happy doing that. And uh, But yeah, my mom was a piano player and a guitar player. played a little of both. She used to sing me songs and that kind of thing. Read me poetry when I was growing up. Um, so a lot of rhymes. I think that probably stuck in somewhere. Um, and uh, yeah, I guess I wrote my first songs when I was like eight. In uh, third grade, I used to listen to the Monkees and watch the Monkees TV show, and uh, I, I wanted to be in a band because I thought the Monkees were cool. <laughs> so I would, uh, me and a buddy of mine, we'd, we'd always, we'd write songs, like uh, he'd write one and I'd write one, and we'd, we'd show, show them to each other, and then we'd sing them a cappella to the class every Friday while we snapped our fingers because we couldn't play anything. And uh, so I had all these songs I was writing, like verse, chorus, verse, just like, you know, typical like pop songs uh, based on the monkeys kind of format and um, uh, formula. And I uh, did that when I was about eight and I didn't write music again until I guess I was 13 or 14, started writing, you know, pop, pop, pop punks, I guess punk songs. I don't know. They're just catchy songs that were fast. And what I started my first punk? Was that what brought you? What brought you back to it after that hiatus, or to to come back to it again when you were a teenager? Um, I don't know. I always, I always liked. I, I did all kinds of art. You know, I did acting and theater, and you know, I've always been a good visual artist. I guess uh, painting and drawing, and you know, I just experimented with a lot of different things, and you know, eventually, 
you go around the world, you know, you end up back in the spot you started at, I guess, you know. Um, I uh, just started to do music again. I wanted to play guitar. I wanted to be cool, you know. <laughs> um, so then I started my first punk band, I guess, when I was 17, 16, I don't know, something like that. And we were called Three Prong Outlet. And um, we played this kind of, I guess, like, it's not like pop punk, like Newfound Glory. It was more like that kind of old school Green Day, East Bay flavor of pop punk, grittier stuff. What um, kind of things were you rebelling against at, at 17 in, in a punk band? Oh, just, God, I was like a teenager, everything. You name it, I just, I didn't like it. <laughs> um, so I had no idea. I was just kind of like really shit. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I just like, I've always liked entertaining people. So that was a big part of it. I like to be on stage and, you know, I like to get crowd rally and, you know, um, I always liked the idea of one day having records out and vinyl and stuff that people ordered off of like, you know, ca- uh, mailing lists and, you know, rarities and things like that. And, like, I like, I like that whole thing. Um, so by this so, time uh, as, as a okay. teenager and you're playing in a band, does at an early age does that become the thing for you where you're like yeah i'm doing music whatever else is that's fine but I'm oh yeah do music. yeah totally then that was it i was done dropped out of college you know when i got there after like a two semesters and went on my first tour and um did you have an idea were you going to college towards something or just like i'm just going because you're supposed to go man i was just going because i was supposed to go man <laughs> uh but, I mean, honestly, at that point in time, it was the place to bump cigarettes in the quad <laughs> for free. <laughs> I didn't really pay much attention to my studies or whatever. I I can remember the uh, the, the last day I ever went to, to college. Um, I guess I was about uh, maybe like, yeah, I guess 19. And uh, we had just, our old drummer had left Three Prong Outlet to go to college and, like, you know, do something real with his life. And um, he... Uh, was replaced by this guy who, whose father had a share in Microsoft, and this kid was really rich from a couple of counties over, and he had all his money, and his dad got him a $60,000 RV mobile home for his 18th birthday, and he happened to be joining our band at the time, and next thing you know, this guy rolls up, and he's like, hey, man, he's like, I'm going to book us a tour to Chicago. We're going to roll out there in this RV. And I'm like, cool, man, when? He's like, you're going to have to quit school, though, man. It's like, it's happening this fall. And I was like, okay, well, let me think about it. And so I knew I wanted to do music because all I did in class anyway was write songs on my notebook and shit. So remember the last day I rolled up, I, I went into the woods and whipped out my little bong that I had in my backpack like I did every morning, took a couple of riffs, <laughs> got pretty spaced and just like walked down to class, walked into psychology class like 20 minutes late, just like fucking glassy-eyed and red pupils and whatever. And the class is just, look, they know, I, I smell like weed, they know it looks bad. I sat down for maybe five minutes listening to this guy talk in front of the room, and I got up and just left, I was like, fuck this, and just bounced out, never came back. Someone asked me if I found God, yes, I think we've met a couple times, but I'm not sure if it was him, cause I can't look him in the eye. And all I heard were warnings from my conscience in the guilty night that said I'll see you on the day you die. I'll see you on the day you die. I'll see you on the day you die. 
No, I've never been to heaven, but they say my head is in the clouds Cause I just sit here by myself and hope I stand out in the crowd I tried to make my father proud, found out that I don't know how Tomorrow there is only here and now Yes, there's only here and now Yes, there's only here and now And I hate to say it, but I've heard it all before There's a war outside my window, revolution at my door Keep your corporate counterculture that I'm trying to ignore Because I don't believe in nothing anymore all these teachers preaching right from wrong Can't help the weak against the strong Or save you from an end that comes for you and I and everyone So I'll just write another song For all the world to sing along Cause after all, someday we'll all be gone Yes, yeah, someday we'll all be gone Yes, yeah, someday we'll all be gone now I've washed my hands of everything The fairy tales and fantasy Apparently reality has finally got the best of me And all those drugs I did in vain They eased the pain and numbed my brain But life is just a high you can't sustain Life's a high you can't sustain Life's a high you can't sustain And I hate to say it but I've heard it all before There's a devil in the details and salvation with the Lord No I'm not one for compliance Defiance left me bored I guess I don't believe in nothing anymore Now I've seen the writing on the wall The darkness in the crystal ball A house of cards about to fall And a peace of mind I can't recall But man the worst thing that I saw Was clearly the reflection of a boy who said, I think I've seen it all Yeah, I think I've seen it all Yeah, I think I've seen it all And I hate to say it, but I've heard it all before After all these years, those chandeliers have crashed upon the floor And there ain't no way of knowing what the future has in store So I don't believe in nothing No, I don't believe in nothing No, I don't believe in nothing anymore I don't know, for me it was like, I wasn't thinking ahead on the level, like, I need to make money right now, I was just like, I'm going to be a punk, you know, like, and one day I'm going to be a punk who gets famous, <laughs> I don't know what the hell I was talking about, but uh, I was having a good time, you know, I was having a great time, um, and somewhere within that, uh, somewhere within those years of writing those first songs and stuff, I, I got this idea in my head that I was like, I want to be a great songwriter, like, that's what I want to really have be remembered doing is like writing really great songs, being a great artist, less a musician and more just like an artist, you know. And uh so I just started working at that and people started saying stuff whispering about, Oh, he writes great lyrics, like and that was our thing with my punk band is it stood us out. We built this this fan base locally in Cajunsville, Maryland, where uh, I grew up. Um I started flyering and putting, you know, shows together at the YMCA and whatever with local bands and more bands would form. And it was a whole big scene. It was really cool. And, uh, you know, we, um, we did a couple albums and then it's somewhere around 2000 and like sort of four, I started getting into like folk music, like Bob Dylan and like Bright Eyes. And oh, I love I guess, Bright Eyes. I love Bright Eyes. That, yeah, he's great. He, he's someone who it's just, it's a fucking like shame to me that he's not just completely why as known as like the way everyone you know it's ubiquitous like oh leonard cohen yeah he's a great songwriter it's like bright eyes should be up there in that level of like look at what this person has done 
you might get there someday. I mean, I have to look at things in this, uh, and this through this lens is that nowadays you have so much out there. And, um, back when like Leonard Cohen was rolling around, Bob Dylan, John Prine, any of these like, you know, big like songwriters back then, you, you had a, a very limited scope of what was available to people to really like look at. Like these record labels really chose what was being heard. So, you had icons being made because one, they had good PR, they were good as well, talented, and they were the ones put in front of you. So we have these sort of like this mythology behind the Jimi Hendrixes and the Janis Joplin and the Beatles and all these people, not disregarding their ability, their talent is definitely there. They're great. I love a lot of their music, but that's it's a, much easier to make. A you know, that's a really interesting somebody. point though, that like, I, cause I know, like I said at the the top of the call, like I, I know right now there's a list of, you know, dozens of artists that blow my mind that it's like how how does not everyone know about them um and, and they they deserve that level of recognition for what they're putting out there in terms of song craft and, and songwriting and i never really thought to apply that to the fact that historically like yeah for every leonard cohen there were like you know there was a, there was a matt pless and a million other people that i'm thinking of that never really rose above whatever local circuit they might have been in yeah it could have been i mean you have to consider that uh i i just think it had a lot to do with you know i mean you, you you're not gonna have three generations worth of like t-shirts and tie-dye wall hangings of some character that came out uh unless you have something pushing that into the public consciousness to mm -hmm. such a degree that it becomes iconic and you will have icons and things like that in this new sort of internet generation, but I see them pop up in smaller pockets. Like there's so many different pockets now in scenes of music. Like, you know, you see people rise to the, to the forefront in those pockets. But as far as like, people always say like, Oh, you're like the next Bob Dylan and all this shit. Like as far as that goes, like, I think that's like kind of ridiculous. Cause I mean, like, I get, I have a similar, similar type of sound to some of the stuff he's done. He's an influence, but you can't really have a new Bob Dylan in an age where there's so much different, type of music out there like so many different cultures are kind of making different types of music now it's not just like you know you're getting like white college kids in the 60s like throwing stuff out like you know the newport folk festival is being pushed by like you know columbia records like um there's so much more than that like you can't have a universal i think figure like that it's there'll be many figures you know, yeah and crossover figures you ever just want to flip that on someone and be like no bob dylan was the first matt plus <laughs> I'll start using that. I do like that. <laughs> um, and not to mention, I don't know if anyone's heard, but Bob Dylan's still around. He's got a documentary coming out on Netflix. And like, yeah, we don't need a new one yet. We're, we've got one. He's doing. I fine. don't want to be the first Bob. I don't want to be the next Bob Dylan. I want to be the first Matt Flash. That would be cool. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So you made that shift over to singer songwriter and. Um, yeah, going going through your songs, which I definitely want to kind of chat about, you know, go go a little bit deeper behind some of your songs. Um, but when uh, did that shift come for you to be um, disturbed? Was it like something specific in the political climate that was building for you? I mean, in the 2000s, we're obviously living under the Bush regime. And um, like, where, where did your political consciousness, because there's definitely a lot of, of just agitation about the state of affairs not just politically but socially and kind of everything in in your lyrics and when did that start to seep into your songwriting um i just uh 
I remember the first day I sort of like started getting into all of that. And um, it's uh, what the kids call today woke. When did you get woke? <laughs> I got woke um, somewhere around 7 a.m. this morning. <laughs> no, um, uh, it was right after 9 11. I sort of started getting into, uh, you know, folk music and looking at politics a little bit more. Um, and, uh, I, I was also interested in writing better lyrics. I actually put on a Bob Dylan record, right? Like a week after 9-11. And I was, you know, trying to find something that was like, you know, revolutionary. I mean, that's what the first thing my brain went to was like, ah, oh, you know, the times there are changing. I, I know that's something that people say is a, you know, you know, protesty song for wartime. And so I listened to like a whole Bob Dylan album on vinyl that my dad had. And I just like, kind of really listened to the lyrics and I was like, wow, this is like great. And like, uh, I decided that halfway through it, I was like, man, if people say I write great lyrics about like, you know, going to parties and bong hits, then like, if I can do shit like this, like, what can I, I wonder what, how much better I could get. And, um, so I just started to try to learn how to apply that to what I already knew. And I guess that's what turned what I was doing into sort of like what people call folk punk now, because you're coming out of, punk band and you grab an acoustic guitar you have limited limited musicianship you're playing power chords and shit so you just throw like lyrics um with you know a different spin to them as opposed to you know the typical pop punk stuff and you end up with you know i guess a folk punk sound but i was always more influenced i think eventually well no yeah eventually after i moved to new york city to try to completely copy the bob dylan like path of success um <laughs> uh you know i bought my little cap and my like you know took my guitar and went up there and started playing in the street and hanging out at the coffee shops thinking like, you know, this is how it goes. But, you know, the only way you write your story is if you try to, try to re- rewrite someone else's uh, first. But um, uh, that's when I started learning how to finger pick and sort of like get into real folk music and not like, you know, move from punk to folk and it just got really more into like playing folk. So I always thought my stuff ended up more on the folk line than punk line. Um but, you know, like I said, it's like, you know, in retrospect, I look at things like that and I say, you know, uh, Bob Dylan was just somebody that I was, like, really interested in. And along with Bright Eyes and, you know, a handful of other people. Um, and I liked a lot of hip-hop, too. I was really into, like, you know, Tupac, Biggie Smalls, Eminem. Like, all, just the way they did things with lyrics, the ideas they, they put out there. Um, um, you know, I could, I mean, honestly, you know, you, you could look at, like, you can look at like things like Tupac's written as the next Bob Dylan. The guy did the same type of stuff. Like, you know, he's like, he's doing hip hop and not folk, but you know, that's the lyrics he wrote. And it's the same kind of thing. Like he has very, a lot of very socially conscious lyrics that are addressing issues that, especially in the nineties, were not being brought to the forefront. So it's like, there's a lot of different like, um, experiences and ideas that they like, can be put into someone's like, you know, art. And that's why I think there really can't be a, a universal Bob Dylan now, you know, but there'll be people who are just influenced by that. Um, but that's when it kind of woke up. I guess the, the woke idea is, you know, I want to see, you know, like what I could do with words and like how I could apply what was going on in the world at that time, which was heavy, uh, you know, political stuff and uh, injustice and, you know, even, uh, you know, just um, complete, you know, some even go as far as to say conspiracy, you know, what was going on in the government during the Bush years. And, um, uh, you know, I just want to kind of get to the bottom of that and, you know, bring that out in my, in my lyrics or whether that was conscious or not, I don't know. And I just, whatever I do, I sort of soak it up like a sponge and it comes out in the words. If 
It starts with an explosion, do you end it with a bang? First the whistle start a blow and then the guilty finally hang. There's a storm on the horizon and the water's on the rise. We're watching history repeating with the changing times. The figureheads keep talking but they're buried in the sand. Everyone is pointing fingers, everybody plays their hand. The fix is in, the game is rigged, the pawns are polarized. You either pick a side or think outside the picket lines. I wonder, is this a revolution or just vast confusion? When every voice is trying to scream the loudest for equality. While we argue strategy, culture, and philosophy. People die in city streets all paved with blood and poverty. Powers with a chosen few. Desperation's just a tool that agents of corruption use to keep the jails and prisons full. Diamond pockets lined with profits earned from broken lives. Misled to pledge by one discrimination under God and saying stop the world I wanna get off everything's on fire and it's falling apart so if we can't turn back can we change the course when the fury of the frayed wind blows the preachers sell salvation to the faithful on their knees some prey upon our need and want for something to believe and some have spun the doctrines, holy guides to paradise To justify injustices and centuries of genocide Surrender to your temples, to your altars or your shrines The weapons used by shepherds so the sheep will keep in line Conflicting congregations thinking only of themselves If that's the path to heaven, hate to see the road to hell, I'll tell ya They take a vision, make religion, cause division Keep you vacant and complacent and dependent on a system By creating ways to separate, utilizing class and race Prejudice perpetuates and keeps monopolies in place Trickle up or trickle down, stack or spread the wealth around Someone's hope is running out while fortune fills a bank account Empty promise politicians pander to the poor While there's money used for funding phony wars on foreign shores And saying, stop the world, I wanna get off Cause they're loading up the bullets and they're dropping the bombs The propaganda beats to the narrative drums When the fury of the frayed wind blows the criminals in Congress, they ain't got no ground to stand They're building walls and borders all around the stolen land A legacy of liberty, that's how the story goes But conquerors rewrote the past to suit the status quo So is it institutions or the state of humankind That leads to some exalted over thousands left behind They'll push it to your limit, but in turn they'll push their luck Cause sleeping giants riot when they finally woke it up Because they're buying your silence with those shiny advertisements They lie and cheat and steal and tax your habits So you'll finance what they hide away behind the scenes Cover over underneath Population exploitation victimized by vanity Faces in a magazine Pictures on a pixel screen Set a lofty standard that disintegrates your self-esteem Race to chase a plastic dream Red carpets and limousines Blinded and distracted by the flashbulbs of celebrity But just beyond the limelight after fame has run its course They'll throw you to the lions while a sold out crowd will roar I'm saying stop the world I wanna get off cause there's bodies lying Breathless bleeding piling up They shook the bottled rage now it's bound to erupt When the fury of the frayed wind blows 
think yourself in circles but the answer's never clear is there safety with surveillance is there freedom without fear unravel and untangle all you thought you understood and question everything until you question why you should we'll change the world with flowers or we'll change the world with guns we'll plant a seed or dig a grave before it's said and done but if we come together all for one and one for all Resistance rises up sure as an empire will fall So I'll just push towards a future May it crumble for the better Where tyrannical oppressors are but shadows we remember No judgment based on color or your lover or your gender Dismantle older models so they can't be reassembled But the day the tables turn your way Watch out for a twist of fate Careful not to stumble and become the very thing you hate Seek out something comforting Search for something innocent but but you'll never have those eyes that look at life that way again So you can take the high road, nothing venture, nothing gain But you'll fight fire with fire when you're going down in flames I'm saying, stop the world, I wanna get off Cause we're at each other's throats and now it's choking my heart So we can burn the earth or extinguish the torch When the fury of the frayed wind blows Has your creative process over the years evolved and have you always been more focused on like find the words and then the music will come to them or have has the music ever been the linchpin for how you put together a song? Usually it all just comes like in like one line, a melody with a line come to me out of nowhere and then I'll start building on that. I'll just know when it's a good line or melody like uh um I, I don't know how I know it. It just happens. And then I just go with it. And then I start building upon that and different lines will pop in my head randomly and I'll just write them down. And, uh, I, I really don't know how the process goes. I think it has something to do with, you know, you know, that sort of like transcendence and, you know, with the world that you can't see the world you can't see. And, um, you know, uh, having the, the time and, and space to daydream to, to, you know, and to enter that world. And, um, you know, and then a certain degree of confidence and drive. And, you know, beyond that, uh, you know, support from people will build your confidence. So how people receive what you put out there, I think, plays a lot into how you end up writing and, and, and progressing as an artist sometimes. Your, uh, probably your most popular song is When the Frayed Wind Blows, and I wanted to know uh, wh how did that song come about, what's it mean to you, and, and how has it resonated with audiences? I just kind of came into me. I don't know. I, did, I was in New York City living on a uh, couch for a while in 2015 or something. And I can't remember. I, I, it was sort of like there was a lot of lines that popped up in that that I had been kind of collecting in my notebook for several months prior and didn't know what to do with them. I mean, they were just popping into my head. And then... um yeah, beyond that, you know, I just, I just, one night I got really into it. I just, uh, started writing, writing this song that I, I realized was going to be this epic piece that uh, I thought was like, this is going to really be something important that I do. And I stayed up all night for like, you know, two different days and just like went at this in this like fever of writing this song. And, um, 
I've been reading a lot of the people's history of the United States, and like there was, I think uh, the election was starting to amp up uh, during the primaries, and there was just a lot of politics in the air, and like I was like you know hearing a lot about like, like, like you know just uncover, uh, un, un, I was uncovering history I was unaware of it at certain points, and like uh, uh, you know I was just spending a lot of time in the radical punk scene over the years, and you, know, you learn a lot. It's like like a sociology course with music, you know. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. it's um. I don't know. I think it was just like I said, you know, what I was looking at and interested in and doing at the time came out in a song. And I, and when I finished it, I remember walking around in a circle. I had the whole song done except for the the freaking chorus. Like I needed the line when the fury of the frayed wind blows, and I couldn't get it. I just knew I had that 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 that. Like I just I knew I had to fill that up with some words. So I must have wandered around daydreaming for like four days, and finally I was just like, you know. The fury, fury sounds cool, you know. Fury of the frayed wind, and you know, it just sounded cool. You know, it sounded like it made sense. So I just put that in there, and um, yeah. <laughs> it's a yeah, it's a big song. It really kind of just goes over the zeitgeist of the times in a lot of ways. So it makes sense to me what you're saying as far as how it's coming together. Yeah, it was like everything, you know. And in that sense, you know, you could say like, you know. I'm just one of many Bob Dylans or whatever, like, you know, the spirit of that sort of like, you know, Troubadour, you know, the Woody Guthrie, you know, that kind of thing. You know, there's a lot of that, you know, there's a lot of people doing their, that based on their own perspectives and experiences. And that was just mine at the time. And, you know, if that encapsulated what was going on with a lot of other people's experience at the time, then, you know, that's cool. I'm glad that song could help people, but I never looked at it like, man, this is like the song that's going to like capture everything for everyone right now. And, you know, I mean, I could be wrong. Maybe some songs do do that. You know, I just, feel like it's very you know limiting to say that you know that one person can do all that but maybe they can you know, i don't know but i just thought it was a cool song it was catchy <laughs> do you find that you have a place that you write from more easily like if you're angered or agitated by something versus being sad or happy about things you definitely have a, a an array of i'll say emotional states in some of your songs like there's a song like you know a song, take a song like ashtray which has a lot of nihilism in it, almost like on the nose, if I'm thinking the the right song, the right lyrics. And then a song like What a Time to Be Alive, they seem to be coming from very different places. And and uh that's why that's why I asked the question is is do you find that there's emotional places you come from more or evolve into that you find you write from more often? Um that I don't know. I think any sort of emotional hit that I take, uh, in any sense, whether it's positive or negative, if it hits me strong enough, I'll, I'll get some a, a song out of it. Uh, I've written in all kinds of states, you know. <laughs> can you can you take me through a little bit the difference between what's behind the words in Ashtray and What a Time to Be Alive? Because they seem like very good songs to juxtapose against each other. That's cool. I never thought of that that way. That's cool. That you, but you're right. I, I just hadn't thought of that, but you're totally right. Um, uh, Ashtray, you know, was written about nine years before What a Time to Be Alive. So, I mean, naturally, it's going to be a different place in life. Uh, and I got to say, no matter could, if you quit smoking, you're never going to be able to let go of all these songs with cigarette things in the title. <laughs> hey, you know, people have told me that that song is somehow, I don't know how the fuck it has, but somehow that song has helped them quit or it caused him to quit. Wow. Like, fuck yeah, more power to him. That's the, c- the, cigarette, thing, I did. the cigarette song or at? The ci- oh, the cigarette song. Yeah. Uh, uh, I wrote Ashtray and called it Ashtray because I smoked the Ashtray full of cigarettes while I was writing it. 
But like, uh, nice. uh, the cigarette song actually, like people say it stopped them from smoking. That's like what I sort of had in the back of my mind was I want to get something out there that kind of helps, you know, people out with this and it, it's worked and that's really cool. There's a, a visualization aspect to, you know, art and kind of pushing your trajectory towards that. And I think that can manifest itself if you know how to, uh, uh, you know, cast that spell right. But, um, uh, Ashtray, you know, it was written in a time when, you know, uh, I was feeling really down. I was. I just had it with everything. I, I just was, I remember being at a point where I was just not in a good place. I had had it with like the whole mess and I was sitting on my couch and I looked up at the ceiling and this song just popped in my head. I wrote it in like a 20 minutes, half hour, just came right out, scribbled it down. And, um, it was almost all complete in one piece. And, um, I, I just know I was in a negative place when I wrote that. And, um, I remember also that the, the, the chorus used to be initially, I, I don't care about nothing anymore. But somehow, not consciously, when I was playing it live and practicing it, I I started singing, I don't believe in nothing anymore, which sounds so much cooler because it's sort of this double entendre. It's like, you like I, I don't believe in nothing, but I, it's like saying, but I believe in something now. Or it's saying, like, fuck it, I still don't believe in anything. Yeah. I don't believe in nothing anymore. So I like that, how it came about that way. But if I listened to the first demo I ever did of it, I found out later, I was like, wow, this didn't used to be that way. When did I change that? I never consciously changed it. It just kind of happened. So that's cool. Um, and what a time to be alive, you asked about, right? Yeah, uh, that one I wrote uh, maybe uh, 2016 in New York City. Uh, right after when the frayed wind blows, uh, I think I was on that sort of like uh, tip that I was on with the frayed wind. That was a real passionate kind of like, you know, we got to fix stuff, stuff's falling apart, this positive sort of uh, manifestation of those feelings that was not there when Ashtray was written. And um, I remember thinking on the train when I had come up with, with the chorus, I was like, why has no one written this song with What a Time to Be Alive as the chorus? Like, that seems like it should be somewhere. And I looked it up and no one had written one. <laughs> so, yeah, once I found out that wasn't a thing, I was like, I sort of wanted to kind of model it in, in, in sort of the same realm as like times they are changing type thing, you know. A rallying cry, sort of. I mean, I don't know if it came off that way. I mean, you can't really ever, you can't really always, or you can't always, you know, get the result from writing a song that you intend. I mean, it does with it has a life of its own. Um, I also think about this recently, like uh, as far as like art goes. Um, I never thought of this before, but I, I was thinking about the, the the Wall Street Bull, you know, in New York City. Yeah, the statue. Yeah. Um. So when it was created, uh, as a symbol of capitalism and power and all the time, you know. It was this piece of art. People loved it. You know, it was like, yeah, America, wow, you know, uh, power. And, you know, it was the artist who made it. You know, that recently I've heard that, you know, another artist uh, has created a, I haven't seen it yet, but there, there's a little girl screaming at the bull uh, a couple of feet in front of it. And that's recently been made by another artist, sort of to imply the uh, antithesis of capitalism and all, and the, the power structure, the male power structure, all that kind of thing. And, um, that now is interesting because now the original artist of the bull is really upset that people are sort of like looking at his art that was once looked at was as great uh, as a negative in a negative context. And this uh, symbol of this screaming girl at the bull is uh, sort of the manifestation of that sort of like uh, anger and rage towards what that bull represents in the current society. And um, I, uh, I think that's really interesting how you sort of lose control of your art as an artist. You can't hold on to what it means at the time you make it. Like what's something that's inspiring today could be completely like frowned upon in a hundred years. And yeah. that's depending on how the world goes, which is what has happened to that bull. And I think that's really interesting. Um, so it goes back to me saying, writing a, a song that's like the times there are changing a sort of rallying cry. Can I really have any control over what 
a song it does or means to anyone. No, I, I, I don't. I can't. So whatever that song ended up as, if you look at sort of that, if you look at it sort of as a uh, positive sort of statement that's the antithesis to the ashtray, then you know, mm-hmm. um, hopefully it stays that way. But you know, who knows? In hundred years, it may not. You know. shape of things to come it's that moment in the sun it's the wild reckless turning of the tide sure as every shout begins with a whisper in the wind can't deny it's quite a time to be alive it's the changing of the guard it's the calm before the storm at the crossroads when you're forced to draw the line Give some love and take a stand Cause the future's in your hands Starting once upon a time to be alive It's the sound of the alarm It's the push against the grain It's the single rebel candle That ignites a million flames It's an ocean overflowing flood And when the levee breaks It's when you say The sky's the limit When the ground is giving way riots in the streets, it's a war you wage for peace, it's the opposition's brazen battle cry, through the widening divide, where alliances collide, fighting blindly for a time to be alive, it's the blazing path you pave, with each turning of a page, it's the moral of a story gonna rise. It's the poetry of truth It's a song that sings the blues Playing softly for a time to be alive It's the tolling of the bell It's an echo loud and clear It's the shackles round your ankles It's the flowers in your hair It's a floor plan for destruction It's a road map toward repair It's what appears Along a highway leading anywhere but here Progress through the cracks in a ceiling made of glass It's a finger on the button, say goodbye It's the anger in the crowd when they burn the cities down In the ashes of a time to be alive It's the point of no return, it's the lessons that you learn It's the flags or gods or facts you stand behind Bridge a gap or build a wall Some will rise and some will fall Either way, oh what a time to be alive With our weary heads held high As we face an uphill climb Better keep on keeping on Cause a change is gonna come Sing it loud, oh what a time to be We skipped over a bit. Um, so you were were you living in New York at the time when Occupy happened? Uh, yeah, well, I, I wasn't living there when it happened. I, I saw it on the TV and I was like, I had to go up and check this out. And I just went up there and checked it out. <laughs> and then I was living in the park and on the people's couches during the most of the, or most of the time it was going on. Were you stay? So you were staying down in Zuccotti? 
Yeah, not permanently. I, I would I'd stay down there, you know, a handful of nights and stay at other people's apartments and hung out, you know, at mm-hmm. parties and, you know, just whatever, you know. But, yeah, I, I, I stayed on there a good amount. So what does that event mean for you looking back now uh, as far as its significance? How do you how do you look at its significance for everyone else sort of in the wider scope of history? And what's its significance for you personally? Um, I feel like it was sort of like the like. Uh, it's like when the um, it's like when modern. I feel like it was the start of the current wave of like political uh, or, or the current wave of like um, political questioning and like uh, you know um, protest and sort of like you know. I, I feel like it's like the dawning of like the, the mainstream woke wokeness of uh, uh, America um, that's currently you know in full swing. I think that was sort of what Occupy. Uh, to me, I saw it as in retrospect, like it's like the first time, like in this generation that we've had some centralized thing, everyone was looking at all around the world that was saying, uh, this one thing, um, as a message to sort of try to fix the world. Um, and I sort of look at it as the dawning of the modern, uh, uh, protest movement. Yeah. I see a lot of precursors to that. And also it has, you know, then reverberations from it since, um, yeah. with, uh, you know, uh, standing rock. And then I, I definitely think a lot of the reason that Bernie Sanders had the, you know, the groundswell he did is because of the networks that developed under something like occupy and that occupy was his base. The people who were supportive yeah. of and excited by that. Yeah. I feel like that's sort of where I'm going with it. It's like, you know, it kind of gave kids who maybe like 14 at the time say, well, check this out. Here it is. You know, um, it wasn't like you had to dig for it. It was all over the news and the internet. So, um, I just think it brought that to a mainstream, you know, uh, to mainstream eyes and ears that may or may not have been, uh, knowledgeable with some of what was going on there prior to that. And yes, of course there was, you know, uh, the Bush years and stuff like that. But I just feel before that, the internet really was taking uh, a hold much straighter during the Occupy years. So it got it out much more than I feel like things happened in the early 2000s. That's all. It wasn't by any stretch the very first like protest movement, but I just think in modern times, you look at it in that context, it was one of the first, or it was the first, you know, big uh, mainstream exposure, the big one that got mainstream exposure, you know, and that I think it can, mainstream exposure can get to a lot of people, therefore influencing a lot of people, therefore changing things, hopefully for a good way, in a good way. Was there anything that you, in any ways that Occupy changed your perspective on things? One of the biggest things for me was actually learning about anarchism by attending like general you know general assemblies and and being involved with uh and connecting with other occupy folks is uh i learned a lot about what the history of anarchism that it just i had just glossed over yeah there was uh it was very educational i mean i learned i learned a lot about you know yeah political movements that like i guess i haven't been as focused on prior to that like you know yeah anarchism marxism you know things like that like uh i knew of them you know but you know I, you know, when I was a kid and like punk bands and stuff, you know, I wasn't really, just like in the nineties, I wasn't thinking about like, um, you know, um, the, and, and, punks don't do um, theory. Yeah. It was, yeah. There wasn't theory. It was more just like the, the, the interest of it. There wasn't like theory going on. It was more just like, yeah, anarchy, let's fuck shit up, you know? Like, and that's like, yeah. And that was my, that was my sort of just shorthand of like, Oh, anarchy, no one's in charge. Right. Or it's then like I learned through, 
occupy and like the the mechanisms they had for like decision making it's like no it's everyone's in charge we decide on things through consensus and the only people who have authority are because they actually have expertise or we all agree that they should have authority for this one thing yeah there was all you know watching how people handle things was an interesting uh uh eye-opener for me like you know i i hadn't seen certain, the ways people were going about you know facilitating uh you know meetings and things like that and um in the ways that they did at occupy prior to that um and i thought it was interesting you know one of the uh, things that was really uh really interesting about it um was the way the park was set it just organically set itself up because remember people would talk about it that I, people that were down there that i knew would say like oh that's the upper class the middle class and the lower class because like, they had like top of the park top of the park was sort of like where the steps were you had the college kids and like you had the people running the computers and computer stuff and kind of like the i guess the people who were sort of like the silent organizers more uh in some ways uh and in the middle of the park sort of had people just like, the old hippies who were just coming to like you know relive the times and people like me coming up and just like checking it out and running things and um people who you know have lost their homes who need a place to go like legitimately like were having a hard time and then you had the uh, bottom half of the park where like, the drum circle was and stuff and you saw a lot more like uh, like uh, uh, the homeless and uh, less fortunate folks who are coming there. Um, there was more drugs down at that end and things like that, as you might have known. Um, uh, it was a little rougher down there. And so I heard people refer to it like that. But the interesting thing was to me was like uh, when they finally let people start building, you know, their their shelter there. And when they didn't let us put tents up, they let us kind of build things out of like cardboard, wherever we could sort of put together as long as it wasn't a tent. All the best uh, houses were built by the people who were in the quote, lower class of this park, mm. which is, because outside, you know, these a lot of folks they were off the New York streets, and they they knew how to survive in that in that sense. Like, whereas the people who were you know the well-off kids from like the, uh, the colleges and things like that, who really had never experienced being outside, living in the street, you know, uh, there was not quite those like tent city uh, structures that were really you know well done, castle-like tunnels going around like they had in the lower part of the park. And I thought that was kind of interesting how you know that kind of thing. And, 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 you know, people at the top part of the park were complaining because there was drugs in the lower part of the park and this and that. And, that. and I just thought, like, oh, I had this, this sort of always, does this, does this always happen? Is there always this sort of like separation and things that go down? Or is that only because it's coming out of the society that we live in right now? Therefore, it's creating a new microcosm of that, uh, uh, that is being influenced by the, uh, the things that are causing that to happen in the society that we live in right now in the, in the, in the greater picture, if that makes sense. Yeah, I'm, in, I'm inclined to think that the latter just because just because you set up a new space for things doesn't mean that you you're just going to shed all the stratifications that we have yeah 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 that's what i was getting at too like um it, it seems it seems to me you, you it's almost like you but know, where it can be better is those if the people on the quote you know top are more aware of and 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 attentive to the people on the bottom <laughs> Like that's where the yeah, difference no, can lie. Yeah. It would be, but whether they were or not in that microcosm, uh, I do not know. I wasn't really at right. the top. I was kind of in the middle and the bottom. I mean, I don't know what's going on in people's heads, you know, but overall I think, you know, Occupy Wall Street's a good thing. Like, I mean, like, I think it was, uh, you know, whether or not someone agrees with what people were saying there and there was a lot of different opinions that were sort of all, uh, there's no way to agree the- with what people, I mean, like, of course you don't agree with what everyone was saying there. But anyone who says like, oh, I don't agree with Occupy Wall Street, it's like, well, that you can't say that because it was a lot of different voices saying like a lot of different yeah. things. 
that's what I was getting at. It's just like, you can't like, there's no single answer to get like, you know, 500 people with like varying opinions off your lawn. You know, it's like people, like you can't just give one big like solution to everybody there. Um, and you know, it's hard, like you said, to come out of what we're in, we're in a mess and like, you know, it's hard to, like you said, rebuild without, you know, having that, like some, some of that, like staying influence from the previous mess on what you try to rebuild. I don't know if there's, I don't know what the answer is. I just thought Occupy Wall Street was a really good way of getting, you know, a message out to people who may or may not have heard it before. And, you know, maybe hopefully influencing their minds to think ahead and say, you know, what can we do to better things off in this world? You know, like, you know, get up off their ass and like, you know, say, you know, fuck this, you know, there's problems and people are either doing something, maybe I should do something too. Yeah. And what Occupy really signaled to me and, and what, where its value was for me is as a moment of crying out for solidarity and just, I was so happy to see that many people, not just in New York, but all over the nation and the world who were celebrating Occupy were, you know, just seeing there were that many people as disturbed by the status quo as I was. And that, that that alone made it like it's a success there and it's certainly a success from just like i said how much how much i was educated just by putting myself down there and, and influencing and being a witness and and listening and then how many connections were forged uh, with you know i know activists who work all the time on fracking or this or that and now that i follow because i went and 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 met them through occupy and there's so much value in that of just these connections that exist now because of that yeah the networking aspect as far as finding like-minded individuals is definitely cool i mean i met a lot of folks through that that channel that like you know are still in my life now that you know taught me a lot of things you know they taught me out along the way and it's like you know anything like that going in a positive direction i think is you know it's important I mean, Occupy did a lot of stuff. It's hard to kind of pinpoint, I guess, for me, one thing that was just like, this is it. Like, uh, you know, time meant a lot of stuff to a lot of different people, but hopefully it was all on the same lines and something positive. Denise said he'd be home late, earning money on the side, tipping food on their plate, only trying to provide, but it sealed his fate, selling bootleg tapes by the subway train. When the cops came through in an hour or two, they unloaded hot lead through his valid excuse, proven black and blue can be more than a bruise, leaving one less seat at a table for two. The officers stood trial, crippled justice, let them walk.
massacre the likes of which we never seen Some reporters called him crazy, others blamed his beliefs His religion or conflicting sexuality But it doesn't really matter when push comes to shove Cause he aimed a loaded weapon at a Florida club Taking 49 lives, hated how they loved Left a shadow on a rainbow, drenched in blood The politics of ignorance will lie and generalize It spreads the threat of prejudice to songs that you feel regularly compelled to tell a story behind it before you play it it's something i've uh come up with as interesting with some musicians kind of saying the same thing you were just talking about about how you might have like oh i wrote this song because i was breaking up with this person or i was agitated about this thing happening in the world but and if you tell that story someone will have that context but if you don't that story, that song can land on them in any way and, and, and mean anything to them. And I have some songs that I, I'll tell the story to because it's, it's more about like, you know, something. About, but I am aware of like you kind of you can step on people's ability to make the song their own. Hmm. That's a good, that's a, that's a good point. I, I haven't really thought of that. Um, I generally don't uh, really get into the whole like singer songwriter tradition of like, this song was written about this girl I knew back in uh, Memphis. Uh, you know, I don't do that that much, you know. Um, sometimes I like throw something witty in there, you know. But like, I, I guess I do. I, I like people to take the songs in some mercurial sort of way. It's like, you know, I try to not like use uh, gender specifics in a lot of my lyrics when it comes to love songs, because I sort of want any any person to sort of be able to like relate to it. And if you say like. I mean, I have done it. I have written songs that they are coming from a, a man's perspective to a woman because that's the situation I'm going through as who I am and I identify as. But uh, that was most of the old, older ones that have been in that been done that way. Uh, and you know, um, the last decade or so, you know, things I've written as far as, as far as love songs go, I try to write, you know, um, so anyone can get into them using the words like I or like you know you instead of like she, him, they, whatever. You know, I, I kind of want 
people anyone could be i want to write songs that anyone can relate to yeah um and that's important to me uh so i guess in that sense uh having someone be able to relate to a song uh is important so explaining what uh it is to me sometimes i guess will be sort of uh counterproductive towards getting that across because yeah like you said do you, do you give it to someone with no explanation let them kind of put their own like you know uh view into it or do you tell them this is about this and then they always have that clouding their their interpretation of it yeah that's interesting um i, I don't know if i have an answer I, I i i generally don't explain a whole lot of the songs to people oh that's fine i was just curious and i'm not going to be like oh man come on i wanted to hear one of the song <laughs> stories it's fine <laughs> There's two there's two previous guests I'll email you. I really think you'd enjoy hearing some of their stories and, and definitely some of their music. Um, one is this guy who's been a staple here in Cleveland and, and really lived a gutter punk life. Like was it the old New York CBGBs in the 90s and stuff like that? Uh, this guy cool. Zayla. He uh, and he's he has some it's it's interesting hearing people's theories about songwriting. He travels in a lot of Native American circles, and one of the things he kind of internalized from one of the tribes is that they look down upon the first person. Like, you shouldn't refer to yourself as I or think of yourself that way. You should only think of yourself in terms of your reflection based on how other people perceive you and, and what your impact on them is. So he avoids using even the first person in his songwriting because of that. And it's fascinating all these different ways you can be conscious about how you're writing things and what they mean in different ways. That reminds me of this one guy who told me once uh, a long, long time ago. He was like, one of the hardest things to do as a songwriter is write a song without using the word I in it. And uh, I, I, I've ended up being able to do that. Uh, but it's definitely something I had to be conscious of doing when I did it. Like it wasn't, it didn't come naturally. I was like, I have to be aware of it and try not to do that um, for the most part. So, uh, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, like, you know, not using the word I as like, you know, self-referential stuff in lyrics is, you know, that's, that's a thing. You know, that's like, that takes to a whole new place, a whole new place when, um, you, you don't use it. Do you ever, do you ever think about like, uh, do you ever think, um, you, you want to like, do you change lyrics to songs you've written earlier, uh, later on, if you find a new perspective or a new way of looking at it, um, makes the, uh, song better or, um, more relevant to you at the time versus like it, it was when you were writing it initially. Oh yeah. And, and I don't, I don't even have anything recorded yet as a musician. So I'm, everything's very malleable and, and it's still in flux and development. Um, I'm a living example of what you were just saying about like, it's, dangerous for an artist to get too comfortable and so i all of my songs were written like my the most creative period was like you know right after i got divorced and then i started writing a whole bunch of songs and then about two years later i met my current wife at an open mic and we fell in love and we had kids and then uh i've been very happy happy and content and then trying to raise you know have a stable home for children and i haven't written a song in many years <laughs> Hey man, that's cool though. I mean, I think about that a lot now. You know, I think about like you know, yeah. Do I want kids one day? Do I want like a in a stable home and a, and a family? You know, it's something that I look I look more at now, uh, in in like my late thirties than I did you know, when I was like twenty for sure. And uh, I I see the I see the life I built for myself, which I'm proud of. But uh, there's definitely something lacking in that that I didn't really think about as much when I was in my twenties and early thirties um, that I'm starting to look at now. And well, you of, should you no, but you're doing it right. You're doing all these things now. I mean, I didn't have a kid till I was like 32. 
33, mm-hmm. you know? So, you know, it's better better to do all that stuff in your 20s and 30s than, you know, I realized like, oh, you know, once I started having kids, I'm like, oh, I should have really been living like a crazy punk life for a couple of years. <laughs> no, no, I, no I, get where you're coming from. I get where you're getting at with that. Uh, I just, uh, I, I guess I start to, maybe like you start to say time is running out, you know, it's just like, that kind of thing. Like how many years you got left? Like, have I ever taken a vacation? I've just gone on tours. You know, I haven't taken a vacation in 20 years, but I've gone on a lot of tours. You know, I've seen the world. I've seen a lot of the world for a very short time, and I feel like a lot of—if you want to see things, you have the option to see a lot of things for a short time or a few things for a long time. And I did the latter, or the, the prior to that, um, the former. Sorry. Well, you're doing—you're doing like the survey course where you like take in a bit of everything, and then yes. you know later on you can decide like, okay, Luxembourg was really nice. I'm gonna go back there for a couple of months. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, it's funny because, like, yeah, like you're saying, I, I've been to all these beautiful and great places and met so many amazing people, and, like, currently I'm just, like, I just want to hang out at home, my hometown. <laughs> and, like, uh, that kind of bums me out a little bit because I'm like, man, I love Edinburgh, Scotland. That was fucking cool. You know, Prague was great. You know, Denver, Colorado, you know, North Cal. But, like, there's something about being away for so long. I would do like eight months on the road. I was on tour for like four years doing DIY gigs and like, you know, trimming pot for money and getting paid through merch and DIY donations. You know, I just did this shit like for a minute. It was life. And, uh, I mean, it's still my life, but I'm definitely not on the road, like, you know, nine months out of a year at this point. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think at some, at some point that becomes self sabotaging because, you know, you can't live that way for like 20 years like and not have some sort of stability in some fashion at some point. And I guess I crave a little more of having some stability right now that may change, but I haven't had much of that. So therefore that to me is as much of a rush at this point as, you know, you know, hitchhiking from fucking, you know, Las Vegas to like LA overnight with a meth head smoking 15 blunts in his car the whole way, listening to fucking death metal. Like, you know, that's like, I did that, you know, like, I kind of, I think about, you know, would it be cool to like, you know, have a kid and like, you know, sing it to sleep or something, you know, this kind of thoughts go through my head now. Yeah. I smoked lots of cigarettes, filled my lungs up with regret, but I got a second chance. I put down those cancer sticks, never should have picked them up, but they say what's done is done, and I'm done with slavery, feeling better every day. I said I'd quit a time or two before, then I'd always bum another from a friend. Because moderation meant just one more, so I hope I never smoke one again. No more holding hands with death, had to stop and catch my breath. No more coughing in the cold, stranded on Tobacco Road. Used to smoke them in the car when my favorite song came on with a coffee or a beer after nearly every meal. Feeling like a hypocrite and making corporations rich. In exchange, they make me sick. Either way, you pay for it. They sell them to you overpriced. Medical bills start to rise. Life's a drag, but surely I can find a cheaper way to die. And I remember. Fits of nicotine Wishing every cigarette would never end But it seems like lately I need room to breathe So I hope I never smoke one again But when it comes down to 
to it Some folks just don't want to quit And that's their prerogative I can't tell you how to live But I hope that you survive Hope I bought myself some time Hope we make it out alive Or at least till 95 I'm through with throwing half a pack away Then the next day digging through the garbage can Because I'm an addict What else can I say? But I hope I never smoke one I hope I never smoke one I hope I never smoke one again there's a certain level of compromise you're not willing to put forward or, you know, dances you're not willing to dance and, and suits you're not willing to wear in order to say like, Oh yeah, you can, you can have a contract if you do this and that. Yeah, no, you're right. I, I've, I've, I've turned down some things in my life that I just didn't agree with what was going on. Um, uh, at this point, you know, in the world we're at, you know, the fact that people know my music and they, I get messages saying it's helped their lives or changed their views or, you know, uh, anything that's making the world move t more towards like, you know, a positive like place, you know, where people are actually caring about people or thinking about the things that are going on that are making people not care about people or, you know, anything that's helping someone like start to change their own life or the world around them for the better. Uh, if my music's helping that happen, then that's cool. That's success to me. Um, you know, and, you know, just, just the fact that, you know, people message me to play places, you know, and I'm don't make a ton of money. Like I, by no means I'm, I'm making a, killing all the music here that's not really if someone would say you know financial success is different than artistic success for sure you know and hopefully you know in some way in this world i mean well that's what i that's what i like to that's what i mean by that question to some degree is like do you define it's like you know i'm successful because of this or are you yeah setting it to like uh is it monetarily successful at a certain point or i'm not monetarily successful i'm artistically successful at this point i think I'd agree with that a hundred percent. Yeah. But I, I, you know, in the end, you know, you know, there's fucking money is a means to an end and just like, you know, rat race we got to live in. Like that's not the ultimate thing for me at all. It's just like shit where I like to, you know, have enough money to have a, a somewhat comfortable life where I'm not like, you know, really struggling. Sure. Most people probably would. Uh, but you know, artistic success is what, it, it, it's what counts. That's what the love is. That's where the influence is. That's where the fucking like the legacy is. And you know, the, you know, that's where that's where the legend is. You want you want that if you're doing art. You want something to like really like last. Uh, you want to put something out there that you know is a good link in the chain of art. Whatever influenced it, you know what it takes from that. If it takes it, makes something good with it, and what people take from what you make with it, and if they make something good with it, and it becomes part of a chain that is a positive link in that in the art chain. You know that's what I think is success artistically, and I, I think I've done that, or I, and I'm in the process of doing that. But financially, you know, I, I do struggle. Yeah. Have you mostly subsisted over the like years of your folk career on DIY venues? Oh, like, in, like you mean like uh, insisted on playing? Or sub subsisted in terms of like, do you mostly get around when you tour playing smaller DIY venues, or do you not have? Are there certain cities where you don't have trouble just booking an established venue? Um. Well, I usually go through kids who. Uh, Something shows up, whether they set up at a bar or, or a house, it's whatever, as long as they set it up and throw it and people come out. Like, uh, generally, the intimate gigs seem to work better for the stuff I do as a lyrical like, writer. Uh, you know, you can get a bar, a sh you get a show at a bar, 
some sports bar or whatever, and you got some TV on behind you, no one's allowing people drinking, no one's listening to you. It doesn't matter if it's a big venue. You're not going to have anybody pay attention. I mean, you play a small house show, you know, where there's like, you know, radical minded people and, you know, like respectful people, and, you know, they're like in a quiet, intimate setting, and they can get to talk to you and meet you afterwards, and you get to form a connection with them that really, I think, hits home with a lot of people um, if they want to, like, you know, uh, get into an artist. I think that offers it, but that lends itself much better to, like, what I'm doing at this point as a, a relatively unknown on a, on, a, on a wide level songwriter. Uh, to get my stuff across to the people who are really passionate about hearing it. Um, uh, you cannot play, or you can, but I feel like there's no reason to play like a huge venue, like, you know, the Black Cat or something, or the 930 Club. I don't even know if the Black Cat's still around. Uh, you can't, there's no point in playing some massive venue as an artist doing solo acoustic music uh, to a huge, like, thousand-seater room if you don't have uh, a fan base or you're, or you're not opening for a bigger artist. That would be mm-hmm. the key is to play this. Like Frank Turner wants to take me on tour or something. Like I can play those big rooms and it would be very beneficial to me and people would hear it. And it would be an atmosphere in which the stuff I was doing as an acoustic solo artist would be much more, uh, much better well received uh, than if I just played by myself and sold 50 tickets to my friends and shit, you know, like, um, so I guess DIY venues, house venues at this point have been preferred. They have their downs, their down points. They have their up points, you know? Uh, one day I do hope to get to a point where I can do a, you know, uh, tour of bigger venues, uh, opening for a bigger artist or headlining them myself, um, with a band or, you know, solo, you know, I think, uh, you know, Connor Oberst, you know, nobody wants to fucking see him play by himself solo at a fucking bar when he's nobody, but you know, once he's big, you fucking pay extra to see him play solo in front of like 5,000 people. <laughs> oh yeah. So this is going to come out on Monday the 17th. You're coming through Ohio here shortly after, right? Actually, this is uh, something else I would have to address. Uh, re- recently, as I said, I've gotten uh, clean off of all the substances I've been doing and you know, partying and things like that and mm-hmm. you know, trying to live a little bit of life and get it together. Um, I've, had, I've had to cut some of the tour dates in the beginning because a uh, person I'm working with has suggested that that's a good idea uh, until I get this sort of routine a little bit more ingrained, uh, give it another week or so, and then... I've had to basically cut my tour short about 20 days or to about 22 days. Oh, okay. Uh, so shows. when's your, when's uh, your next date? Uh, it'll be in Nashville. Um, and the 26th, uh, and I will be coming back through, uh, Ohio in the future. Um, there's another part of this too, that's sort of gotten in the way is the album that I finished recording has, I haven't released it yet. I thought it would be out by now, but I have not been able to find a label or a, you know, good publicist to sort of like put it out there. Uh, in a way that I feel like, you know, I, I want to do it this round. I'm so used to putting albums up on a band camp and just like throwing it out there and like seeing what happens. Uh, and, you know, it's, I, I sort of want to see what happens if I actually, you know, try to focus more on the God, forgive me, the business end of things for once um, and try to sort of, you know, see what I can do with this album as far as getting better exposure um, to more groups of people and have, uh, you know, a wider audience, see what I'm saying, um, and see what that does. So, that's why it's being held back a little bit. I'm getting closer to the point where I'm working out with some pe- working with some people who are interested in releasing it, but uh, it won't be out for this tour. Therefore, I don't see any reason to go all the way out to California when I don't have any material to sell. For, you know, right? That word, but <laughs> you get it. Uh, so yeah, I'll be I'll, I'll be booking larger. On top of the fact that I kind of want to get my routine straight uh, with a completely sober mind, so I'm. Um, you know, comfortable staying out on the road for a long period of time again. Cause you know, when I go out for like eight months, it was just like, you know, party, live bad, eat shit and fucking who gives a hell if you live or die. But like, now I'm trying to sort of, you know, uh, trying to find a way to live 
healthy while on tour for a lengthy period of time doing DIY. Oh, good that, for you. Uh, yeah, I think it's hard though. You know, it's it's, it's very it's not an oh, easy man. atmosphere. It's, to... it's so hard. Just when I when I pack up the family and we drive to like upstate New York to visit my in laws, it's so hard to eat well. Just we're just getting from here <laughs> to there. Like just on that one yeah. road trip, much less like you know if you're on more of a frantic kick and trying you know, and it. But w even when we're like you know, I don't we we don't care how much we spend for dinner. We just want to eat, not eat crap, and it's impossible to find anything. Yeah, and you, you can imagine like trying to like you know uh, cook an uh, egg and veggie omelet at someone's house, and you have to be someplace by a certain time, and you already you know get up at a certain time, and like there's people trying to do their own thing in their own house, and you know it's just you have a seven hour drive, and it's just like then you got to work out during the day as well at some point, get 45 minutes of that in, you're trying to stay in shape because you're trying to you're driving and sitting down, like letting your body just like sit in that chair for like or the car seat for like six hours, three hours, five hours every day. There's just so much getting in the way of like you know quality life um, out on the road that I didn't really think about as much before that I'm really trying to. Uh, uh, put in put into practice at this point in my life. Well, just make sure you pack like a blender and a bunch of smoothie packs, and then if nothing mm -hmm. else, you can just subsist yeah. on uh, that. Maybe I should write a book or something about how to survive healthy on the road. Or I'm sure there's like 20 zines or that already. But oh, like, I think I need to look into. No, that I think that's definitely a niche topic that should be uh, uh, fleshed out and figured out. Yeah, I think it'd be beneficial to some people because like, the road's full of demons, man. You know. <laughs> Well, I hope uh, when your road passes through Cleveland uh, again, let me know um, if I can't put on a show for you. I can definitely hook you up with some people who can. Um, yeah, that'd be great. Because uh, I know the scene here would really uh, love to hear your voice, and I'm excited to, you know, with the Cleveland audience I'm building up with this podcast, at least introduce them to Matt Pless. So I want to cool. thank you so much for doing this interview, man. And uh, hey, I will thanks for letting me. I will put all your pluggables and whatnot on the uh, on the description for the episode. Uh, since you're not going to be passing through town, I'll still be getting the episode up on Monday. But I was doing that in aid of uh, your show coming coming up. But uh, if anyone happens to be in Nashville, they will be able to find you and find all your stuff on mattpless.com, I assume. Yeah, everything is out there. Um... I'm not, like I said, I'll be back through Ohio uh, and, and, but before the end of this summer, and definitely by like the early September, mid-September. Uh, I just have to get a plan set. I'm getting like requests to play all over the place beyond even America at this point. It's a little overwhelming recently because uh, I'm not, you know, I'm doing this all myself, and there's just so much yeah. mapping it all out, making it all work. I'll be on the road for fucking four months if like I just went straight. So I just can't do that. I gotta, uh, you know, it's just a lot to like work. I have to find a, I need a battle plan. So I'm working on that right now. <laughs> well, you know, if you're coming through on, in September, let me know when you see if you see what that date might end up being when you know what it is. I'm thinking about throwing a um, a one year anniversary show for the podcast and having on as many cool. of the musicians I've had on over the last year. So uh, that could work. Yeah, it could. My happen. home base is Maryland, so it's not far. So I could make that even work. Cool awesome. or not. Awesome, man. Cool. Yeah. Great. Thanks for letting me get interviewed and stuff. I appreciate it. <laughs> oh, no problem. Thanks so much for coming on, man. It was really great getting to know you. Right on, man. Take it easy, right? Where's your congregation gone, you venture?
preaching all you think you know Your ship came in and left you void of purpose on the shore Your legacy don't matter anymore The cobblestones are crumbling along your chosen path your vagabond court jesters finally having the last laugh The prophet with the withered hand She grins and draws your card And now you see yourself for what you are Just another face lost in the crowd Though I'd like to wish you well That's a lie I cannot tell The truth is that I hope you're happy now Everything has changed its shape from how it was before your one true love has called your bluff and shown you to the door And though you're weak and wounded by this Judas we call life Consider this the last twist of the knife And as you pass the halls of karma on your high horse you may ride back around Did you make each moment count? Cause your time is running out And when it does I hope you're happy now
Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, like any struggling podcast, I can always use a little iTunes love with a five-star rating or swing by the Facebook page, throw a like my way, maybe a couple of comments. And if you really, really like the show, you can kick a couple of bucks my way at patreon.com slash bzdug. That's B-Z-D-U-G. Okay, that's it. End of podcast. Enjoy whatever it is you're about to do next. Thanks. Bye.